I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. Now, if you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. Herb Alpert has had a long, fascinating career as a musician, songwriter, producer, record executive, and more. But he'll forever be known for that distinctive Tijuana brass sound. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We talk with trumpeter and AM Records founder Herb Alpert. Then we review the new album from the legendary Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and that is the unmistakable sound of our guest this week, trumpet player Herb Alpert. I mean, Greg, this is a resume that, that, is, that is unparalleled in the history of music. All those 60s hits with the Tijuana Brass, Lonely Bull, Whipped Cream, you know, his version of A Taste of Honey. He is a songwriter. He's a producer. He co-founded one of the coolest major labels when those things were still cool, A&M Records with Jerry Moss. He, of course, was the A, and Moss was the M. Signed the Carpenters, Cat Stevens, The Police, Janet Jackson. He's given a lot of money to really worthy causes. In his spare time, he's a sculptor who's shown his art around the world. And at age 81, Jim, he is still touring and recording. He's cranking out new albums regularly. The latest is called Human Nature. Herb Alpert, it is an honor to welcome you to Sound Opinions. Well, thanks so much. I'm glad to be with you guys. So, Herb, tell us how you got your start in the music business. I mean, what a story it's been, right? I started, you know, working as a songwriter. I was partners with Lou Adler, and we wrote some songs with Sam Cooke, and then, you know, we wrote Wonderful World with Sam. And then Sam was a great mentor. He was, uh, he didn't know he was teaching, but, you know, he'd, He'd look at me and say, Herbie, you know, we're just uh, we're looking for a cold piece of wax, and it just makes it, it either makes it or it don't, you know? Yeah, yeah. So he was from the field school, you know, and, and it, that, that, that was a big aha for me. Don't know much about history, don't know much biology, don't know much about a science book, don't know much about the French I took. But I do know that I love you And I know that if you love me too What a wonderful world this would be The Feel School, that's an interesting uh, note about Sam Cooke. In other words, uh, the emotion had to be there. No matter how much technology was involved, the emotional element had to be there. I I take from that, right? Well, that was the only thing that had to be there. I mean, Mm -hmm. Sam was a gospel singer. He came out of the... uh, gospel phil he was the lead singer with the soul stirs and uh, when i met him he was just uh he was an amazing artist that I, I i can't say no more he was a gentleman and an amazing artist he'd carry around a folder and he had these uh write some poetry write some lyrics he showed me these lyrics and i looked at these lyrics and i said to my i was thinking to myself man this is really corny i said what what, what does the song sound like he picked up his guitar and all of a sudden he transformed these lyrics into something really beautiful. You know, I said, oh, mm, that's it. It's all about the feel, where you put the notes, 
the space in between the notes, the melody. And, uh, you know, that was a big lesson for me. I think we have to start, uh, as, as any story with you has to start, with uh, that chance trip to Tijuana, and you hear a mariachi band, and the lonely bull comes out of it. So uh, take us through the, the earliest Tijuana brass, the lonely bull, that incredible success. Yeah, it wasn't one uh, chance trip. It was, uh, you know, a couple seasons I used to go to Tijuana and, and watch the bullfights. And I never heard mariachi music, but there was a, a brass band in the stands that I- introduced each uh, event, you know, like when the bull would come out or before the bull would come out, you'd hear this brass band go, and then the bull would charge out. And <laughs> it was quite exciting for the first, uh, I guess I was there for th- three seasons, and then I... Th- I kind of got turned off by uh, by bullfighting because the last time I went, I saw a bull gore the horse. Ooh. And, you know, that mm-hmm. was just not a pretty sight. And I just thought, man, this is not for me anymore. At any rate, I was enamored by that feeling of those afternoons. I tried to, you know, do something that would reflect that feeling with with a song. And that that's how The Lonely Bull came out. And The Lonely Bull melody was totally different when I heard it. It was written by a friend of mine. And he wrote it like a music box, so it was like very high pitched demo that he made. Do 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 do. You know, coming out of a music box. Mm-hmm. And I liked that melody, so I I kind of, you know, put my own stamp on it and changed a little bit of the bridge. I played it for a disc jockey friend of mine, and he said, um, "Where's the hook?" <laughs> I said, what, "What are you talking about, the hook?" He says, "No, you need a hook." I said, man, this is an instrumental record. Mm-hmm. There is, there's no hook. You need a hook, man. So, you know, I thought about that, and I called a friend of mine at Liberty Records who had happened to have a tape with 30,000 people screaming Olay. Mm-hmm. And I put that right in front. But the, after the fanfare, while the fanfare was going on right in the front, that was the hook. And that record took off like a rocket once we put it out. Now, there was actually no Tijuana Brass band at this point, right? I mean, you recorded with the Wrecking Crew, the session musicians. Yeah, exactly, and there was no Tijuana Brass band until after the Whipped Cream and Other Delights album. Mm. Yeah, I just used the musicians of my choice. Uh, They actually didn't play on the Lonely Bull. That was like the drummer from the Ventures played drums on that. I played piano and some did some voices behind and some percussion. You know, that whole thing was recorded for like $300. That you put up yourself, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we put up ourselves. You know, Jerry and I started, we had a record called Tell It to the Birds that I was singing on. And uh, this is before A&M. It was uh, on a label called um, Carnival Records. You turn me on and you put me down. I catch you running all over. We had this record, we released it locally, and in San Francisco and L.A., the record kind of uh, did 
did rather well, so we turned it over for distribution to Dot Records, and uh, we got, I think, $700 plus a percentage, and with that money, we recorded The Lonely Bull. And we should explain that the M is uh, Jerry Moss, your partner. In uh, A&M. Yeah, Jerry Moss, my partner of... uh, so many years now. I mean, we started A&M Records. This is a beautiful part of the story. Is we started this company on a handshake in my garage. We never signed any agreement, anything that resembled, a, you know, a serious agreement until we sold the company in 1990. Mm. Uh, and it was a beautiful experience because I was in partners with a wonderful gentleman and uh, honest gentleman. And uh, when we signed to sell the company, we hugged each other, and that was it. You know, we did this company that was uh, pretty darn successful on a handshake. The whole idea of A&M starting this label uh, with no money, did you first try to get somebody else to put out the Lonely Bull for you, or did you just have this notion from the start with your partner, Jerry Moss, that hey, we're going to do this ourselves? Well, I mean, there were a lot of little labels. In 1962, labels were rampant. You know, people were operating out of the trunks of their car. There was no office. So if you had a, a good master and then you took it up to a radio station in those days and the program director happened to like it, you know, they, they'd either put it on the air immediately or wait for the next meeting. And then, you know, it was like that type of thing. So we just thought we were putting out a record. We weren't thinking of starting a, a, a record company. Just we wanted to put out a, a single record and see what would happen. And when the Lonely Bull took off, you know, we got a lot of feedback from, from distributors that said, well, hey, man, why don't you guys just take the money and run? Mm-hmm. And we thought, hmm, that's, that's fodder for let's see if we can hang on to this for a little while. And that's what we decided to do. You know, once that door opens for you, it's really, uh, you need that momentum. Mm-hmm. I remember getting a call from uh, our distributor in Washington, D.C., who said, man, you guys got a smash. And this was like about two weeks after the record was released. He says, that Acapulco 1922 is a monster. I said, man, <laughs> you are on the wrong side. <laughs> you know, they were playing the other side, and it was a smash. <laughs> have been perceived as sort of a novelty record, you know, with the sound effects, and and you turned that into a sound. Was it sort of a a serendipitous that that happened, or did you sort of see a way that this was going to translate into sort of the start of your career on a broader basis? Well, you know, I didn't even think like that. I thought that, um, you know, a lot of times in in those days especially, you'd hear a hit record, and then you'd hear the, the same artist for the second release, you know, do something very similar. I didn't want to do this Lonely Bull sideways. I wanted to see how far I could take it. I wasn't thinking about, you know, how much money I could make or how popular I might be. I just wanted to make nice records. So that was my pursuit. And it took a while, you know, after the Lonely Bull album, which was a big success, we put out the second album, uh, Tijuana Brass uh, Volume 2. Didn't do so well. I've still hung on to that sound. I mean, I just took songs that I, I felt were worthy of recording, 
and I had a good time in the studio. And then I recorded uh, the album uh, South of the Border. That was the third album. And while I was mixing it, I was at Radio Recorders uh, mixing it. This was late at night, and this maintenance lady was was cleaning up the studios. And she knocked on the door, and and she said, What's that playing? I said, Well, it's, it's the Tijuana Brass. She says, I really love it, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I thought, whoa, I think we're on to something here. Yeah. And yeah. in that album, we had Mexican Shuffle, which the Clark D. Berry Gum Company took as a, a national um, song for their PR program. And, and I think that thing kind of uh, pointed the way for the sound of the Tijuana Brass. It sort of became the Tijuana Brass became an aesthetic, you know. I mean, you performed the main theme for Casino Royale, and then there was the dating game music. You know, there was this hip, pan-cultural kind of, you know, living life large, drinking tequila, playing that horn, and, of course, the cover for whipped cream and other delights. Herb, uh, did you know when you first saw it, I, I imagine, was it your idea? Did somebody bring you an artist proof? Did you know, like, this is going to be an iconic album cover of all time? Well, not only did I not know that, I didn't think that was an appropriate album. I thought it was a little too racy, to tell you the truth. I was in the uh, the studio recording the Whipped Cream uh, uh, album, and Peter Worf was our head of uh, in, uh, graphics. He designed that uh, idea, and when he showed it to me, I was in the studio, and I wasn't sure it like it reflected <laughs> what I had musically. <laughs> My partner, Jerry, you know, loved it. He thought it was, you know, uh, racy and... A little edgy at the time. Uh, right now, it doesn't even qualify for being edgy, but it was, you know, special at that particular moment in history. And uh, I went along with it, and it certainly became an iconic cover. I'll tell you something that happened, and this, man, I'm, I'm not making this up. This happened, like, about three months after this album was released. This guy comes up to me, and he says, Mr. Albert, do you know that whipped cream cover? I said, yeah, well... She says, I, I just can't get it. I love it, man. It's so beautiful. I said, well, thank you so much. What do you think of the uh, album itself? He says, well, I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. <laughs> and, man, and this was three months after it was released. The record, though, is an interesting album. It did have sort of a concept to it. There was a sort of a food theme in, in at least the album titles. Tell us a little bit about your thinking uh, in in making the music for an album that really proved to be a huge breakthrough for you. Well, you know, we kind of backed into it. I got a call from our distributor prior to uh, recording the album. I got a call from our distributor in, in New Orleans, and he said he just heard a song that Al Hurt had turned down. Uh, and he thought I might like it. So he played it for me over the phone, and I loved it. I said, would you please send it to me? And uh, that, that turned out to be, uh, you know, Whip Cream. That was mm-hmm. the song that, you know, started the whole thing.
after that record you know became a moderate success jerry said let's get a an album filled with food titles <laughs> and call it whipped cream and other delights and that was the brilliance of uh, you know jerry's move there and you know within in that um album had the biggie a taste of honey which mm -hmm. was a whole other story because when i finally got the group together we had released a single and taste of honey was on the b side third man theme was the, the song that jerry was pushing we were playing in seattle washington and Every time I played Taste of Honey, the people went crazy. I mean, they they loved it. There was something about it that, uh, you know, really touched. And sometimes I played it twice in a row. So I called Jerry from Seattle. I said, Jerry, look, at you're, you're on the wrong side. It's Taste of mm. Honey. He says, mm -hmm. no, man, you can't dance to the thing. And it's it's too long, and it stops in the middle a couple of times, and it starts and stops. And I said, I, I don't know about that, but I'm, look, at there's a focus group up here. <laughs> and I think Taste of Honey is is the one. So... We finally turned it over, and Taste of Honey was the one that really, really opened the door for the Tijuana Brass, because after that record hit, people started buying, you know, The Lonely Bull again, and the second album, and South of the Border. We got on Ed Sullivan, and Dean Martin, and all the big shows. That was the, you know, the song that really, really did it for us. After a short break, we'll talk to Herb Albert about his career as the co-founder of A&M Records. And later, we're going to review the 16th studio album from Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And today we're talking with the legendary trumpet player Herb Alpert about his storied career as a musician, a record label founder, and so much more. His latest album is called Human Nature, but I wanted to go back to the very beginning. 
What's your earliest musical memory, Herb? You know, when did you decide you wanted to become a musician? Well, I was very fortunate in my primary school, elementary school in Los Angeles. There was a music appreciation class, and uh, you know, which doesn't really happen that much anymore in in public or private schools. Uh, and there was a, a table filled with various instruments, and I was curious about the look of that trumpet. I picked it up. I tried to make a sound out of it, but I couldn't. I was blowing hot air into it, and obviously you can't do that. You have to buzz into the mouthpiece. But when I finally got uh, you know, the hang of it, this trumpet was uh, talking for me because I was super shy as a kid. Mm. So that was the start of it. And then you know, little by little, in, in junior high school, I played in the band. And then in high school, we got a little group together and you know, a lot of good feedback. And people liked the way I played, and one thing led to another. Your foundation just gave more than $10 million dollars to uh, Los Angeles City College. Over recent years, it's given $150 million to music education. Clearly, you think that's important. Oh, I think it's super important, I'm, especially this last uh, donation uh, for the community college. This is one of the elements that most people that donate overlook. They're looking for the more, the more sexy uh, donations to the major universities. But this community college, you know, helps kids that don't have that opportunity to go to an SC or UCLA. They don't have the funds for that. So this gives them, you know, the opportunity to go to school, free of charge, learn to play, take music lessons, do whatever they have to do. And, uh, you know, if they have the guts and the courage and and the willpower, you know, they can take it to the next level. But it gives them a, a, a chance. I mean, I think it's a way of, you know, kind of, in my small way, leveling out that playing field. What, to you, were the key ingredients in making that Herb Alpert sound, that Tijuana brass sound in the 60s? You know, the genesis of the Tijuana brass sound was was really when I heard Les Paul and Mary Ford's version of How High the Moon. Somewhere there's music, Les would layer his guitar uh, many times over. I tried that with the trumpet, and all of a sudden I came up with this sound. That, that was the, the genesis of the Tijuana brass sound. So that double trumpet sound, you know, was identifiable, but uh, I think you have to have the ability to pick on a good song, a good melody and be able to put it in the right, uh, you know, frame. Mm-hmm. It, it's all about that, I think. You know, it's like in 1968, I had the number one record as a vocalist, not because I can, I'm a great singer. I, I don't even think of myself as a singer, but I had a, a song that was terrific. I was doing a television special for NBC at the time with the Tijuana Brass, and the director, Jack Haley Jr., asked if I could sing a song. If you know, He says, I was tired of photographing you with the trumpet in your mouth. I hmm. said, well, if I can find a song you know, I could handle, I'll, I'll give it a go. So I called a friend of mine. His name is Bert Backrack. Have you heard about this guy? Yeah, we've heard of him. <laughs> yes. I said, Bert, baby, tell me, is there a song you, you find yourself singing in the shower or whistling or maybe you didn't get the right recording of blah, blah, blah? 
So he sent me This Girl's in Love With You that he had recorded with Dionne Warwick. You see this girl I love the melody. I said, I'd love to do this song, but we need to change the gender. So I gave uh, Hal uh, David a call. The lyricist. Yeah, he was in New York at the time. And um, I asked him if he wouldn't, wouldn't mind changing the lyric to uh, This Guy's In Love With You, which was zoomed to number one in two weeks. I've heard some talk They say you think I'm fine Yes, I'm in love And what I do to make you mine Tell me now, is it so? Don't let me be the last to know my hands A shake I said the same thing to Hal, you know, when I was leaving his house after he changed this lyric, I said, is there a song you find yourself, you know, in the shower, blah, and he, uh, three days later, he sent me close to you, mm. and I was, I was doing that as a follow-up. Why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near, just like me, they long to be. I thought it was a pretty darn good recording. I was in the control room listening to a playback, and Larry Levine, who was um, our head engineer at A&M, who was a dear friend of mine, I said, Larry, what do you think? This is pretty good, eh? He says, man, you sound terrible singing this song. <laughs> he actually said that. So I put this song away, and, you know, luck be have it, I gave it to the Carpenters in 1970, and that was boom. That was those the song that, uh, you know, opened up their career. On the day that you were born, the angels got together and decided to create a dream come true. So they sprinkled moon dust in your hair, a golden starlight in your eyes of blue. That is why. What did you think of the Carpenters when you first heard them and said, you know, I want to work with this duo? Well, I love them. I, I signed them. They they went around to every record company in Los Angeles, and, and they were rejected. And I heard this tape, and I, I used the same system, you know, that Sam Cooke taught me. I just closed my eyes, and uh, I was on my couch at A&M. Speakers were in front of me. I put on this tape. 
Karen's voice was like jumping out. She was like she was like sitting right next to me. Don't be afraid to love and get love returned. Don't be afraid to tell everyone you've loved. And I was thinking, wow, I gotta I gotta talk to this girl. I had a conversation with uh, Richard and, and Karen and realized, man, they were really, really into this music that they were making. Like Karen was playing drums at the time, and she thought of herself as a drummer, not as a singer. Yeah. There was something about the two of them that really struck me. It's, they, they were making the music that was just coming out of them. They were sincere about it. Richard was uh, a student of uh, you know how to record and what type of echo chamber. and It was something I thought, let me take a chance on, and I signed them. You know, in, in those days, uh, Jerry and I were just, uh, you know, if we wanted to sign an artist, we'd just sign him. And if I wanted to sign something, an artist that he didn't particularly like, it didn't matter to him. He just thought, let's go with it. So that's what we did. And, you know, we didn't have a, a, a whole crew, a whole room filled with people saying yes or no. It was just our own decision. Well, and you yourself said at the start that you guys weren't thinking about money either or about hits. You were thinking about doing something that you loved. It, that seemed to be the motivating principle. I'll tell you the turning point of A&M, as far as I'm concerned. It, it was in 1964. We signed Waylon Jennings, and Waylon was a disc jockey and a musician in Phoenix, and I, I produced the uh, first few records of his. I did this one record with him called uh, Four Strong Winds. Four strong winds that blow lonely Seven seas that run high All these things that won't change Come what may But our good times are all gone And I'm bound for moving on I'll look for you it was really a good record and Chet Atkins happened to hear it and Chet made an overture to Waylon that uh, you know when he got out of the contract with A&M he'd like to talk to him which he probably shouldn't have done that was a little jumping over <laughs> jumping over our bones a bit you know but Waylon made me aware of it and I wanted to take Waylon a little more pop and Waylon want, really wanted to be a country artist so um, he told us about Chet's thing, and, and Jerry and I talked it over, and we decided to well, let him out of our contract so he could go with Chet. And he was just about a year into our contract. And we signed his release, and I looked at Jerry. I said, this guy's going to be a big artist. And Jerry said, I know. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, man, if we could do that and be that honest and have that mm -hmm. type of integrity with artists, we're going to be successful. And that's what happened. Your label, Herb, was extremely eclectic. Um, I think one of the things, when I think back on your music, I don't think that Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass really had a genre. You were kind of uh, operating in many worlds at that time. <laughs> With A&M, did you want a label that sort of reflected that sort of wide range? Because you had you, you signed everybody from the Carpenters to to Joe Cocker and Free, some of these hard rock bands that uh, were very different sounding. Yeah, we were just thinking about it as music. We were just trying to make good music. We're trying to make... Uh, we, we weren't interested in the beat of the week. You know, we wanted uh, artists that had something uniquely special to say. Let's say Cat Stevens, you know, is so unusual. He just picked up a guitar by himself and knock you totally out because he was so passionate about what he was doing and his songs were great. Trouble, oh, trouble set me free 
I have seen your face and it's too much, too much for me Trouble, oh trouble, can't you see You're eating my heart away and there's nothing much left of me and then, you know, I was kind of a little bit of a stuffed shirt in the early days because I, you know, I, I have a classical background and I was doing my music and rock and roll to me was like maybe a little too noisy. <clears throat> and then we signed uh, Joe Cocker, uh, Mad Dogs and Englishmen, mm -hmm. and they were rehearsing on our soundstage at A&M. And so I walked in there, I closed my eyes and I sat on the, uh, on the stage and, and was just listening to them. And all of a sudden, man, I started getting goosebumps and I opened my eyes and I looked at Joe. <laughs> And he was, you know, gyrating around with, you know, pretending he was playing guitar while he was singing. And I said, <laughs> wow, man, <laughs> I get it. This is good. <laughs> and I, I, I was transformed. How did the police come to record for A&M years later? Well, they came out of, you know, in, in 1968 or so, you know, Jerry had the feeling like we're, the image of A&M is a little soft, so let, let's, let's see if we can open the, the, the iris up a little bit. So he, he flew to England and we signed, uh, you know, we established an office there and, and it actually came out of our English office and I think it was Derek Taylor who actually signed them. And then they had this song, uh, Roxanne, that started taking off uh, in Europe and uh, started taking off here in the States, and that was it. Rocks. I remember seeing him uh, shortly after at the Whiskey A Go Go, and they, I was thinking like, wow, these guys are fantastic. There was three guys that sounded like, you know, like 10 people, and Sting was jumping around the stage like he was on a pogo stick, and they were making just beautifully interesting music. This is one of the, the proud signings of our career, for sure. And Janet Jackson? Well, Janet Jackson, John McClane was the one who... Uh, got the idea to get Janet together with uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. And, and she's a terrific uh, artist. I mean, she has a great feel. Obviously, she dances, and all her songs were, like, in that groove that made you feel good. And she's special. I did a couple records with her on, on my album. Yeah, it was like 87 or so, right? At the height of her fame, I think. Alone, 
Well, Herb, you know, you're talking about A&M uh, having this diverse roster, records like Whipped Cream and Other Delights and, and, and Control by Janet Jackson that everybody owned. That's a thing of the past. That recording industry... Uh, of which you are, you know, a, a, an epitome. You know, we, we look at Herb Albert and Jerry Moss and say, these guys had ears, as they used to say, you know. Um, it's gone. How do you feel about the way the industry is changing? You mean we don't have ears anymore? No, <laughs> people still have ears. It's not that they don't make millions of dollars anymore. Yeah, no, I'll tell you, it's, it's dramatically changed. It's a whole other industry. It's, it's completely different from, you know, the time you mentioned. And the way of making music, the way of you know presenting it, it's it's a different world. We're talking zeros and ones now. You know, I did an album uh, off the Whipped Cream and Other Delights album called Rewhipped. The uh, producer or the person that gave me the idea, you know, said, "Let's get these mixers from around the country, have them remix uh, the Whipped Cream album, and I'll add some trumpets to it and see what happens." I said, well, let's give it a go. I'm, I'm willing to try it. I wasn't excited about the idea when it first uh, was presented to me. So they got these remixers, and they used to send me music files. You knew you could send a music file. I put a tr- new trumpet on it, put some ad-lib trumpet. I'd send them just the trumpet back because it's all time-coded. So they just got my trumpet. They put it into their master uh, mix, and they were all over the country. We did this album, which is really good. I never met these guys face to face. And that's, the point is, you know, it's, it's a different way of doing it now. And it's, it's, I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's just different. Human Nature is your latest record, very modern-sounding, contemporary kind of record for you, uh, and, and you seem to have always kept up with trends and also put your own stamp on it. That seems to be the thread that connects those 50-plus albums going back to the early 60s for you. How do you sort of keep up with what's going on out there? And, and is, it, is it a case of just choosing stuff that appeals to you and saying, hey, I can do something with that flavor? Well, I, yeah, I, I like melody. So when I find a melody that I like to pursue, you know, I try to find ways to do them. And I t- surround myself with young musicians, you know, guys that are thinking about what's happening in, in the modern world. So I don't know, I just have a good time playing. So when I hear a, a track or a sound that, that appeals to me, I just try to put my horn on it in a most honest way. And it's been really good over the years. been talking to musical legend Herb Alpert. Herb, thanks for coming on Sound Opinions. Hey, you guys. Thanks for having me, Greg and Jim. I appreciate it. (laughs) 
I know if you listeners are like us, uh, talking to Herb Alpert has stirred up a few memories about those records uh, back in the day. If you've got some comments about Herb Alpert's music or A&M records, give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. When we get back, things are going to take a dark turn as we review the new album from Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. And Jim's going to share a song that he can't live without on the Desert Island Jukebox. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that's a track called Anthracene from the new Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds record, Skeleton Tree. Nick Cave, a, uh, a man of letters in film, a refined man of letters, <laughs> who also happens to be a, uh, a punk rocker, uh, going back to uh, the early 80s with his Australian band, The Birthday Party. That was a room-wrecking band. Cave relocated to the UK and then formed The Bad Seeds in the mid-80s, Literary ambitions combining with this equally ambitious approach to uh, music, everything from blues to gospel figuring into his music, as well as the original post-punk that he was doing. His concerts are these riveting spectacles with Cave in the role of this deranged preacher or, or a dapper gangster. He's developed quite a reputation as both a live performer and a studio musician. But he's also published plays, poems, novels. He's appeared in movies. He's written the, uh, the soundtracks to about 16 movies. It's an incredible discography, even if you take the bad seeds out of it. But at the same time, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, 16 albums strong. Cave also did a couple albums with an offshoot group called Grinderman a, a few years ago. His songs have been covered by everyone from Johnny Cash to Metallica. Uh, one of the most revered figures in, in modern music. Skeleton Tree is his latest album from Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Here's a track from it, Distant Sky on Sound Opinions. Let us go now My one true love Call the gas man Cut the power Set out 
We can set out for the distant skies And watch the sun Watch it rising In your eyes That is Distant Sky by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds from their 16th album. Greg, I think your uh, passion for Nick Cave was palpable in that introduction. I am every bit as big a fan. I think he's been on an incredibly strong run the last couple of years, last couple of albums. This album has more context, and and you didn't get into it. His 15-year-old son, one of two 15-year-old twins, died in a tragic fall from a cliff. And that hangs over this album. Even though many of the songs were written before the recording, he added some lyrics afterwards, and the, and the performances were done after the death of his son. This is a nihilistic album. This is a bleak album. Two problems. You know, musically, it, it, it's kind of plodding. There's not a lot of really, certainly none of the aggression and fun of Dig Lazarus Dig or anything he did with Grinderman in recent years. You know, it's more in the soundtrack mode of almost ambient music. The bigger problem is is the lyrics. You know, Cave is asking himself again and again, does anything matter? And his answer is nothing matters. Nothing matters anymore. You're gone. This love has left my life. It's a hard listen. And I'm a Cave fan. I was eagerly anticipating this album. I had a really hard time. I prefer my Dark Night of the Soul classics with a little bit of redemption in them. You know, you think of Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones and Shine a Light. I I need a little of that, and I don't know if Cave has found a reason for living other than the fact that he's making this music and singing these songs. It's a really, really tough listen that you may only want to come to once in a rare while. For that reason, on our buy it, try it, trash it scale, I can only give it a try it. Well, Jim, it is a dark album, without a doubt, even by cave standards. He begins and ends the album with songs in which the narrator is calling out to God and doesn't get an answer. been wrestling with a lot of these questions from the very start of his career. Here we get to the nitty-gritty. Is life pointless? Can, can I go on? Is it possible to go on after suffering, you know, a terrible loss? Even though many of the songs were written before his son died, the performances were given after his son died, and you could hear it in his voice. I mean, world weariness 
is a cliche. It doesn't even do it justice, what we're hearing out of Nick Cave's voice on this record. I've never heard him sing like this. And even though the subject matter is very familiar to Cave and to his fans, the way he interprets it this time is very different. And yes, it is on a borderline of feeling like there is no way out of this. But there are moments of beauty on this record. Rings of Saturn is one of the most beautiful songs he's ever written about a muse that goes away at the end, but at the same time there's this twinkling of beauty. This is the moment, this is exactly what she's going to be. And this is what she does, and this is what she is. And I hear it in that song, Distant Sky, that we just played, that beautiful voice of that Danish soprano, Elsa Torp, that almost rests on his shoulder like an angel saying, you know, somehow there's an answer to this. The last words on the album are, and it's all right now. And it's all right now. And I feel like there is a light somewhere that he is working towards as this album ends. The vulnerability is heartbreaking. I find it a very moving record. It's not a record you're going to want to listen to all the time, but for me, it's a buy it record. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Remember, we were shipwrecked together. As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island and play a record we cannot live without. The warm weather months are ending, but Jim, you're heading out there right now. So so I have a story behind uh, why this song's been on my mind. You know, my project for this summer was to get the sleeve of tattoos on my right arm finished. I'm sitting with Benoit, who's a friend of mine, internationally uh, renowned tattoo artist, and uh, the first person into the shop in the day gets to, to hit the Spotify, right? <laughs> and so he had this space rock jumping playlist, and the Black Angels pop up, this song, Bad Vibrations. And the combination of the endorphin rush of me having a painful needle stuck in my arm for three hours and the space rock of the Black Angels, a band we discovered, I think, about 13 or 14 years ago Mm -hmm. at South by Southwest, formed in Austin, Texas, named, obviously, for the Black Angels' death song uh, by the Velvet Underground, one of their trippiest tunes, but also with that unique twang that Texas brings to psychedelia, they have backed Rocky Erickson from time to time of the 13th Floor Elevators. So somewhere between the Velvet Underground and the 13th Floor Elevators lie the Black Angels. This song, Bad Vibrations, of course, a pun on good vibrations, right? Because there is bad trip psychedelia, right? You know, the hippies always talk about the journey toward the white light and crossing through the doors of perception, right? You can also have a nightmarish vision. And the Black Angels conjure this really well with a a woman on drums who stands up while she plays, Stephanie Bailey, just like Maureen Tucker, with the wonderful droning sounds of that band, the combination of aggressive noise and hypnotic drone. We, we've just always loved this band. They're about due for what would be, I think, a fifth album uh, allegedly coming soon. I love them. I hadn't heard them in a long time. I was in the tattoo chair <laughs> suffering, and this, this relieved my pain. Bad Vibrations by the Black Angels from 2010's Phosphine Dream on Sound Opinions.
Black Angels, Bad Vibrations, my Desert Island jukebox pick for the week. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, uh, the avalanche of fall releases is upon us, and we're going to review some of the best of the bunch next week. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banaszak, Evan Chung, and Alex Claiborne. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Jim and Greg, this is Zach calling from Ann Arbor, Michigan. And my buried treasure pick for you is Buick 6 with their album, Plays Well With Others. This is a fantastic, largely instrumental album, and you might know this band as the touring band for Lucinda Williams. That's where I saw them, and they were the opening act and backing band. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Rick from Morrisville, North Carolina, calling with a buried treasure suggestion. The record was called Life's Hard and Then You Die by It's Immaterial came out in 1986, and if you weren't living near a great college radio station, you wouldn't have heard it. It's just been reissued. Uh, no two songs on this album sound alike. They're almost like a great chef that never repeats himself, and not only knows the right spices to use, but in the proper proportion. Bottom line is this record would easily make my top 100 albums of all time, which is, I guess, about the highest compliment I could give a record. Thanks. Hey, guys. I uh, just wanted to recommend a local band's latest album that's kind of flying under the radar right now. It's I, We, You, Me by Oshawa. I think you guys will dig it. Really artsy uh, local music. So check it out. Thanks. I find beauty in the ultrafluorescent. I find God in all types of deep. Truth in the most common of chemicals. I find it cruel, I love my bed. The nausea and the routine. I find you in the sanctity. I find art in the contract. I find pain with all time. My name is Jeremy. I'm from Detroit, Michigan. I know it's just listening to the Mud Honey episode that you just aired uh, recently. And I gotta say, I, I was first introduced to Mud Honey when I was a teenager, around the same time that Nirvana was getting really popular. And I kind of felt a little pang of nostalgia there and enjoyed it immensely. Thank you guys so much. 
Jim, Greg, it's Jimmy in D.C. Um, as usual, I'm a couple episodes behind, uh, but this time is because we were actually down at the beach over Labor Day, and so when I got back to hear the summer end of summer songs, um, I was excited. Uh, there's one song I absolutely want to hear every single Labor Day. That's California Dreaming by the Mamas and the Papas. I've gone so far as to pull it up on YouTube just to stand at the edge of the shore and listen to it uh, as the sun rises on Labor Day morning. The notion of California just recalls the beach for me, but the melancholy of the song just says the end of summer to me. Thanks for the show, guys. Bye. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.